Look forward to having Gary Thomas with us. He's one of several line of uh, great speakers and communicators on, on family issues that we've had. Kevin Lehman, we've had Gary Chapman, and different people come in and just pour in. I'm glad our church is at the size. I'm glad that our people are giving so that we're able to do something like this, to, uh, to be able to do host him, bring him in, and so forth. It's just going to be a great ministry for you, your family, and your friends that you know that, that might need a little, uh, little sprucing up in the marriage department or looking for and you wanted to make good decisions, great time for even seniors in, in, in college or high school to be attending the sacred search time. So it'll be a great time to lay some foundations. And we're only able to do this because of your giving. So I want to say kudos to you guys for your faithfulness in this. Go to a conference like this, probably on your own, cost about $200. We're going to be about 10% of that, about 20 bucks. And you'll be able to come and be able to get poured into and really grow as a couple or as an individual where Wherever you are, at whatever stage you are in life. Because I know Lori and I, from the beginning of our marriage, we dealt with a lot of myths of what we thought, our expectations of what we thought marriage would look like, feel like, and be like, only to have those myths busted on us uh, when we realized that she wasn't what I thought and I wasn't what she thought, and we have to work things out and figure that out uh, along the way. I can remember one example, and I was literally talking to my mother this past week about it, and that whenever we got married, my thought, the myth is, is that I thought you could only make spaghetti one way. All right, and it was whenever you put, take your plate to the to to the bu- to the bucket to get your spaghetti or whatever, it's all the meat and the sauces and the noodles are all mixed together, all ready for you. That's how I grew up. That's the only way I knew spaghetti came, okay? Until I married Lori, and then I had to go over here and get my noodles walk all the way across the room and find the sauce and and put the sauce on there. And it wasn't the same way my mother did it. And so it was a little bit different and it was a little bit wrong. Uh, It's about the best way I can say it. The good thing is, is that now I think her way is the better way to make spaghetti because I can put as much meat on my noodles as I want. So how many of y'all mix your noodles? Any noodle mixers with your meat? All right. How many of y'all separate them out? All right. Oh, wow. Most of y'all. All right. So the myth is, is that there's more than one way to make spaghetti. There's lots of myths in marriage, okay? And you think it's the only one way and it's going to be... The, there's lots of myths when it comes to the church as well. And you think it's this way and it's not that way. Let me, get, let me throw you some of these out again. This is not like barn burner ones that for you. You've been thinking about this all your life and, and I'm going to dispel a myth. But hopefully in this series we're going to relay, relay some foundations, reestablish some foundations to what a church is, to what we're about. And here's one of those myths is that the church has a mission. We've got this great big mission out there before God and we're supposed to be doing this mission and all that kind of stuff. And really it's not true. The church doesn't have a mission. As Briscoe put it, God's mission has a church. Think about that one for a while. God has a mission out there. And it's, it's his, been his mission since the beginning of time. Since the beginning of time. And now here's the beauty of it. He's taken that mission and he's given it to his church. We are a select, or as it says in Peter's writings, a peculiar people. That's actually a good thing. Uh, We're a very select group of people that God has given his mission to. 
It's a beautiful reality that, again, it's not just that, hey, I get to have a mission and we have a mission. No, God has a mission and he has chosen to give it to us. may not be that profound, but just let that sink in a little bit. But here's another one. We are all here today and we're all worshiping Jesus today. Okay? Myth. That's a myth. Even though you know you came to a church, even though you know that this is about Jesus here and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't mean that everybody in this room is worshiping. Even though we call this the worship center and you walked in to the worship center, doesn't mean everyone's worshiping here. There is a difference between a worship attender and a worshiper. And I really want to spend a lot of time distinguishing between that because physical presence isn't enough. Now, it's really hard to be, not be here and, not, and be worshiping, okay? Now, you can worship a lot of different places, don't get me wrong. But to have a corporate gathering of worship, you've got to be somewhere, okay? So physical presence does play into it. But there's also a spiritual enlightenment. There's also a mental engagement that has to take place. I'm going to ask you today to not ask me to be an entertainer in your life, okay? I'm not an entertainer. I'm going to ask you to engage the brain, to think about yourself. I'm going to ask you to be spiritually enlightened based on the Word of God and the Spirit of God working in this great, great synergy in this room right now, okay? And I can't do all of that, and I can't master all that. That's why this is a God thing, not... Not a mic thing, okay? So let's just kind of keep tracking along here. But if we're going to really worship, we're going to do it right, it's going to take all of those elements coming together. Even Jesus said this. He says, His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. There is a subjective element to worship, but there's also a very objective element to worship. His spirit talking with your spirit, your spirit communing with His spirit, but there's also the, there's the truth that's very objective, that's very foundational to our lives and, and, and to how we live. So really, let's kind of establish what real worship looks like. Let me tell you about a 40-year-old man. Well, he's a 40-plus, so I don't know exactly his age. And he was a person who was born in, in, in such a way that he would never walk a, a day in his life. Imagine yourself, 40 Imagine yourself 40 and never walked, never stood on your feet, never ran and played, never climbed a tree, never did anything like that, never kicked a soccer ball or anything. And this man was living in, to this very day, what is recognized as one of the most holy, sacred cities on the planet Earth, living in the city of Jerusalem. And I say that because the Islamic faith, the Christian faith, and Judaism alone consider Jerusalem to be one of the most holy cities on the earth. And so you got all the nations of the world, all these religions are looking at this one city. And this is where this one man lives. And every day he was carried by friends or family members and he was placed right in front of this sacred, holy place called the temple. It was not only was he there in this sacred, holy place called the temple, but he was sitting right at the door of the temple. This man, I will say, is a worship a tender. He was right there. Are you a worshiper? Are you a worship attender today? Are you one of those who's actually here and you are engaged mentally, physically, spiritually in an act of worship? Or are you just like him sitting there right close to it, very close to it in proximity? But are you really, really worshiping?
I want you to hang on to that and be finding in your Bibles the book of Acts chapter 3 is where we're going to continue our study. We've had about a chapter a week for the past three weeks. And so we're just going to continue on at this track. We're going to be in chapter 3 of the book of Acts here in just a moment. But I want to give you one more myth to kind of dispel the myth. Not everyone in this room, to start with, not everyone in this room is worshiping, okay? Some of you are worship attenders. And I don't know who you are and I can't distinguish that. But here's another myth. Worship is for professionals and for perfect people. It's for preachers. It's for, it's for clergy. It's for the professional band up here. They do, that. they do their gig and I watch them. And if I like them, I give them a thumbs up and I tell a friend about it. If I don't like them, I write an email, a nasty email. And I, I tell them how I don't like them. Uh, or I go to another church that plays my kind of music. You know, that I'm looking for some form of entertainment that, 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 that soothes me, that, that I identify with. And that, that this is where the real worship happens. That's a myth. The reality is that we are all called to be worshipers. And I want to talk today about uh, some, a, a very unknown, unnamed individual. We don't know his name. We don't know a whole lot about him other than barely his age. And, and even that we're not even exact on. But I want us to look in Acts chapter... Acts chapter 3, and I want to just kind of break it down as you hear the story firsthand as it unfolds here. And really, if you want to understand the full breadth of this story, you're going to need to read in your own time chapter 3 and chapter 4 because the narrative goes throughout the whole time. Let's begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John. Now let me just stop there. You know who Peter and John are. They're two of the closest disciples of Jesus. They were intimate with him. They were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus in this glorified state. They were with Jesus whenever soon after his resurrection. They were trusted with much of the Gospels and much of the, uh, much of the books of the Bible that we understand. They were, they're authors of best-selling books. In fact, the best-selling of all time. Their books are contained inside of it. These are well-known disciples, Peter and John. But they're not they're going to be the star of the story today. They're supporting actors in their story today. And I want you to hear who we're focusing on is the unknown and unnamed individual who sets at the temple every day. They were going to the temple in the hour of prayer in the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple which is called beautiful, to ask alms of those who were entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, so notice this, he sees them coming. What does he do? He asked to receive alms. Peter directed his eyes, his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. So you get this kind of eye contact thing going on back and forth. One seeing the other, but notice that must have, he must have turned away. He must have put his head down. He must have not wanted to look, make eye contact with him. Must have not felt worthy. I don't know what it was, but Peter had to literally say, hey, look at us. I'm looking at you. You look at us. He directed his gaze on him as did Johnny to fix your attention and expecting to receive something from them. Verse 6, and Peter said, I have no silver or gold. The very thing he was wanting, he did not have. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up. He stood, he walked, he entered the temple walking and leaping uh, and praising 
God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And he recognized him and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate in the temple asking alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico of Solomon's. That was a special place that only the Gentiles could go in. Gentile Jews at that time could go in and they could they could worship in Solomon's portico. And this is a kind of a, a unique story that happens because everybody knew this man. Even though he's unnamed and unknown to us, he's, everybody knew this man. They recognized him day after day. He was the one who was sitting outside this gate called Beautiful. And when I talk about beautiful gates, I'm talking about polished bronze on the outlay of these 75-foot-tall gates. Now notice that these men, these disciples, Peter and John, they were going to pray. Now if you remember from last week, we mentioned that the disciples met regularly from house to house and in the temple. This was something that they did daily. It happened at 9, it says. Now what time is 9? Well, 9 is actually 3 o'clock our time. Because the Jewish calendar, or the Jewish clock starts at sunrise. It was not 9 in the evening or 9 in the morning. It was 3 in the afternoon, thereabouts, where they go and they were praying together. But this was a unique day. And from this, and by the way, if you kind of get lost in that, prayer is an important thing. Prayer is an important part of the, of the walk. And we talked about that earlier on in June. And I, I want to know how active you are in your prayer life because in Korea they get up at four and five in the morning and they gather for prayer. Can you imagine that? God has done amazing things in the nation of South Korea. God has opened up great things because I believe of their faithfulness to prayer. But hang with me on that. Let's just move past that for just a moment. These men were walking up, minding their own business, but they see this guy sitting at this gate. And this time it's a little bit different. They encounter him. They talk to him. They address him. And what I want to do in a very narrative form, if you'll follow along with me for the next few moments, I want to show you four phases to worship. All right? And these go in this order. And so if you thought for the phase one was get the kids out of bed, phase two was argue and fight with the kids over the spilt milk, phase three was fight your way to church, phase four was check them in and hopefully nobody else, you know, they, you, they'll be there when you get back or maybe you hope they're gone when you get back. Um, phase five is you come in here and you sit down and you survive for an hour. Maybe that's what you thought worship was. That's not worship. In fact, that's probably many times what leads to worship attenders and not worshipers. So let me fast forward past all the morning chaos that you went through to get here and let's just get to what real worship is. And I want to look at them in phases and I want to just kind of peel back this story and let us see them. Phase number one is a revelation phase. This lame man lying at the gate is this opportunity for him just to beg for another morsel of bread. Another opportunity to beg for a few more coins to be thrown in his direction. It was just a normal begging opportunity. He's asking for money. He had no clue. It was not in his schema. It was not in his mind that God might want to do something more than just give him more money. See, so many times in our lives we are just set on stuff and things. And that's what we're aiming for in life. But God wants to do so much more in our life. 
This man, as he's sitting there in the front of this gate, and he's lying down there and he's, he's begging for alms and so forth, this revelation stage is a very important stage. Because it is in this stage that you get to know yourself and you get to know God a whole lot better. And God begins to reveal things about yourself. If you look at verse 4 and 5, or 4 there, says, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Now, I don't want to skip past this too quickly. Because this guy had seen a lot of religious people through. Remember, every Jew went to pray. Every Messianic Jew went to pray. Everybody was going to pray. And they passed right by him and they heard all the religious talk and all the criticisms and they heard all the hypocrisies. He knew all about that. He didn't need more religion. He sat there at the gate for 40 years. He was a regular worship attender, if you will. Seeing all the religious people walk in front of him. But this time it's different. This time, Peter and John look at him. See, they'd learned something from Jesus. They'd lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, and they saw how Jesus would move slowly through the crowds. He had ministry to the masses, but he loved the individuals. He'd walk through a crowd, somebody would touch his clothes, and all of a sudden he'd stop the parade. Wherever he was going, whatever was going on, he'd say, who touched me? And he'd want to know who they were, what was going on in their life, and he would heal them. Jesus had ministry to the masses, but he had compassion on the individuals. And you see here in this moment where, where again, Peter and John could have been late. They could have been in a hurry. They could have been just moving on up to the, to the prayer time in the temple. But instead they stopped and they made eye contact. And all of a sudden this man realizes whether or not he could vocalize it, whether or not he could, he could put it into a paragraph form or not. He begins to realize something experientially that he matters. That people are actually seeing me. That people are actually wanting to know me. That people are actually wanting to make eye contact with me. And you know what? When you make eye contact with somebody, you feel a little vulnerable at that point. In fact, if I stare at any of y'all up close here very long, you'll start twitching or blinking or, or something like that. You know, because afraid I'm going to call you out or something like that. But here, here, here's what I'm saying. Is eyeball to eyeball contact is what Peter and James wanted. Peter and John wanted. See, this guy was realizing something about himself. I matter. Peter and John stopped long enough to care. There's a beautiful scene that kind of unfolds there that we can't skip over too quickly and and miss too quickly. See, the realization is this man wanted money, but what he was about to get was a healing. This man wanted to make um, food for the table, but what he was about to get was strength for his legs. But the only thing he wanted, only thing he asked for, was money. And so much of us, is we live the same kind of crazy, chaotic world. This is just a statement I want you to just hone in on. Money can be a great anesthesia to pain, but it is a horrible antiseptic to pain. It does not fix the problem. In fact, money is like salt water. The more you drink, the more you want to drink. You can't ever get enough of it. Money won't fix the problems in life. I think about even Isaiah, whenever Isaiah was, was, had this amazing experience, this amazing revelation experience, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his room filled the temple and the angels were, were ministering to, 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 to the Lord. And it was just a beautiful scene in Isaiah, early on in the chapters. And you see this unfolding there. And what does, what does Isaiah say? 
The very first words out of his mouth. Woe is me. Here's something I want us to learn about worship. It starts with a revelation of who you are. This man thought he was nothing. The unnamed, unknown man. And Peter and John showed him that they were something. You matter. Isaiah thought he was some kind of prophet. But he found out that he was a dirty mouth prophet. And he needed a holy touch of God. I don't know what it is that you need in your worship experience with God, but I will say this. In this room right now, God is downloading on the screen of your mind visions and realities of your own life that nobody else knows. It's a secret part that nobody else is allowed to penetrate. But it's a part of your life that God's saying and revealing to you, this isn't right, this is right. You need to change this. This needs to be made right. What is it? Because real worship happens when there's a revelation of ourselves. Number two, revelation, uh, kind of the sub-point there, revelation of God. Not only did he see himself, he also, he also saw who God is. And you think back to Isaiah, whenever he saw God in this revelation moment, what, he, what, he, what were the angels saying? They were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. Whenever we worship there's this revelation of ourselves, but there's also a revelation of who God is. He saw how holy he, God was, Isaiah did, and how unholy he was. In this moment, in this scene, you find this man experiencing Jesus by his name. By his mere name, God is able to do things. And he experiences him right here because Peter and John say, hey, I don't have any money. But what I do have, I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The name of God. It's a powerful name. You can't just drop names of God. You can't just drop His name and it's a magic trick and it's a magic phrase. But when you know His name and you know the power of His name and you know what His name can do, it it can heal, it requires faith, it, it saves. It's an unstoppable movement when you understand the name of Christ. And in this moment, this lame man met Jesus. Now please hang with me on this. Hear me on this. Real worship starts with a revelation of who God is and who you are. And when they come together, you begin to experience, you begin to see, you begin to be changed. What is it today that God wants to do in your life? Is there a sin that needs to be confessed? Is there a promise that needs to be claimed? Is there an attitude that needs to be changed? Is there a command that needs to be followed? Is there an example that needs to be followed? What is it in your life? It's experiential, it's personal, it's a relationship that we're longing for. The first phase is revelation. What is God showing you today? Write it down. Mark it, lean in on it. He's showing you something about himself, he's showing something about yourself. Marry them together. What's it going to take for you to be more like him? Number two, it leads to transformation. Revelation leads to transformation. You find this in you find this in Isaiah. But the problem is, is that some of us don't experience God. So therefore, we're not transformed. This is a cyclical thing. We experience Him. He reveals Himself to us. He transforms us. 
It moves around. Worship is this cyclical experience. I experience him and it moves around in the circle. The problem is 32% of Americans out there, according to Barna, have not experienced God in worship. Then I wonder if they've really worshiped. 44% said they hadn't experienced God in the past year. There's a real problem with that. Let me ask every one of you a question. Because I hope to God you're not here because you want to be religious. When was the last time you experienced God? When He's shown something to you. He has spoken into your life. Showed Himself to you. Showed yourself to you. When was the last time? And when He does it the next time, lean in. Move towards it. Allow Him to change you. Allow Him to do the work that He wants to do in you. Isaiah, again, think about this man. He becomes the great, one of the greatest prophets to the nation of Israel. But when he encountered God, his lips, his mouth was dirty. And what does God do whenever he confesses it out to God? God sends angels over. They g- grab some, some coals from the altar and they go and they purify his lips. And the lips that were once dirty become the greatest voice to the nation of Israel. Now just lay that over your life. If you were to experience God in a life-changing way, what great work would He do through you? Could He do through you? Wants to do through you. But if you do this to Him, when He shows Himself to you, when He shows yourself to you, whenever He does that, if you do that right there, you will never move to transformation. God wants to transform you like He did Isaiah, like He does this man in verse 7. If you see here, I love the the description of it. So Peter said, "I I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Rise up and walk. This man had never stood up before in his life. Peter reaches down and helps him up. And that last phrase there, the feet and ankles were made strong. Now, Luke is the writer of Acts. He's the recorder of Acts. He's the recorder of the Gospel of Luke. It's interesting that Dr. Luke that he is, he uses a medical term here that is used nowhere else in the New Testament. It's literally found in ancient Greek medical records, (laughs) medical writings. And it talks about the articulation of the ankle and the foot. He literally brings in his medical degree to say, this man had something amazing happen to him. You can just imagine Luke getting down on his knees and watching this whole thing unfold as God heals him, as God does this beautiful work in him. What does God want to do in you today? And listen, I don't, I don't have to drum things up. I'm not giving a whole lot of examples. But right now, some of you all across the screen of your mind, God has got one image, one attitude, one action, one habit, one way, one thought that's just there. And you know right now, God's showing that to you. What are you going to do with it? He wants to transform you. He wants to do something in your life that no doctor, no pill, no no psychologist, your marriage won't fix it. 
He wants to do something supernatural. What is it? Allow Him to do it. Allow Him to do what only He can do. It's what worship is. If worship isn't transforming your life, we aren't worshiping. You cannot talk about worship in the New Testament and talk not go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, where it says, point blank, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is spiritual worship. Again, it's not the band and you watching the band and critiquing the band. It's you presenting you to God. That's spiritual worship. And then he goes on the next verse and he says, don't be conformed by the world, but be transformed. These are pressure words. The word conformed, he said, don't do that. That's one form of pressure. That's an outward molding, shaping, forming kind of pressure. He says, but be transformed. That's an inward shaping pressure called metamorphosis, which is where we get our word transformed from. God wants to do an internal work inside of you that will change the external of you. And what we do in the churches so well, so often, is we try to fix the outside while ignoring the inside. Allow God, allow the Spirit of God, allow the Word of God to transform you. Another verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. As all of us reflect the Lord's glory with faces that, have not, that are not covered with veils. Again, it goes kind of retro worship style there. We are being changed into His image. An ever-increasing glory, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Last week... Following one of our gatherings, I was out in the, in the gallery area and I had this amazing conversation all at one time in this little pot of people that were standing there. There was to my right a Mormon man who grew up in the Mormon church all of his life. That's all he's ever known. And standing in front of me was a Hindu Indian man from Calcutta who was visiting the church. And to my left was a Latino Catholic lady. And here I am as a Baptist pastor. And I thought, boy, this is a bad joke about to happen right here <laughs> as, you, as you sit in this circle. And you know what? I loved it. I loved that experience. And I said, isn't it wonderful when Jesus Christ brings us together? And I'm not saying that all religions come together, but I'm saying I love it as we said last week when we talk about we're seekers, we're explorers and so forth, that we can have a place, a, a church family where people can come and allow God to reveal himself to them, allow God to transform them. And to do a supernatural work because I don't know how often you're going to see that combination of people standing and talking together outside of the work of God and the Spirit of God. Number three, when you talk about worship, you cannot leave out exaltation. That's what we think of when we think of worship. We think of somebody raising their hands. We think of the band singing. We think of that. That's a part of it. But there are two phases that happen before you get there. If all you do is step into this room, listen, 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 listen. All you do is step into this room and you flip a switch, I'm worshiping now, you're not worshiping. Now, you're just that worship attender. It's whenever you experience God in revelation, He shows Himself, He shows yourself. He marries them together. He makes you more like Him, not you more, not, not Him more like you. He does that transformation work where you, you're morphing and you're changing and you're becoming. But from that, you don't ever want to go back. The exaltation happens. 
Notice what happens with, uh, with, this, with this man. I love these words. I mean, it's as if Luke can't, can't find enough descriptives of what happened next. Verse 8, and leaping up, he stood. Now, let's just circle these words. These are the words that never described this man before. Never described him before. He leaped. He stood. He walked. He entered. He's walking. He's leaping. And he's praising God. This man has had an encounter with the living God, Jesus Christ. This man is being transformed. And from that, this man is showing it, is expressing it, is leaping, is jumping. He is showing and he is worshiping God. Some of you call me a charismaniac or something like that. But hey, listen, I'm excited that he's expressing his worship. He's expressing what God has done in his life. Hebrews chapter 12, 28 and 29 says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship? With reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Think about that. What, a, what, a, what an imagery. What is acceptable worship? Hopefully we're kind of getting some parameters of that. Okay, it's revelation. It's, it's, it's transformation. It's exaltation. But let's go a little deeper than that. This is what we've made it. Reverence, is, uh, reverence and awe have been replaced with yawn and familiarity. The consuming fire that we just read about has been domesticated into a candle flame in a bit of a religious atmosphere. Perhaps not too much heat, not a blinding light, no power of purification. When the true story gets told, whether in partial light or in historical perspective, or in the perfect light of eternity, it may well be revealed that the worst sin the church at the end of the 20th century has been the trivialization of God. Listen. Bring your worship We can't manufacture it, man. We can't do enough dog and pony shows up here to do it. We can't introduce enough hay smoke machines back there to bring worship into this room. You fill it with your life when you've experienced the revelation of God. You you fill it with your life when your life is transformed. You fill it with your story as you leap and jump or whatever God has done. You know what Isaiah did? Isaiah didn't leap or jump. Because that wasn't pertaining to what God did in his life. God turns right around at the end of his story and he says, Who am I going to send and who's going to go for me? Isaiah, without hesitation, didn't ask who, what, when, where, or how, how much it's going to cost or anything like that. He says, Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. It will change your life. If you worship, it will change your life. It will change your life. You can't keep it to yourself. You can't, you can't be healed and, just, and then just sit on your mat and say, this is all I know. You can't have your lips touched and then not become a prophet of God. What does God want to touch in your life? And listen, don't keep it to yourself. we got 20 spots out there right now for people to take what God's doing in their life, in this room, beyond this room, and to go teach the next generation. Right now, Stacey Simmons, our new children's director, is wanting to make sure that we have, we have 20 new teachers. Now, I'm not a teacher. That's not me. Listen, if God's doing something in your life, you can't contain it. Get it out. we got trips going around the world. Listen, you've got to be the first in line. No excuses. Put the excuses aside. If God is filling you, transforming you, working you, revealing Himself to you, revealing yourself to you, get on it. 
No more excuses. One last part of phase of worship is there's an infection phase. It's contagious. You can't contain it. When you experience God and God works in you and you see God and God sees, sees inside of you, all of a sudden beautiful things begin to happen. And 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24 to, and 25, it says this, If an unbeliever or an inquirer, I like that. This guy's not a follower. Remember we talked about last week we have in here seekers, explorers, and believers. We're okay with that. If unbelievers or inquirers, Come while everyone is prophesying. They are convicted of sin and brought under the judgment by all. Listen to this next statement because how many of this, how many of you does this describe? As the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. Some of y'all in this room with more secrets than you got money. More dark spots than you care to recognize. But God has a way of making that right. Cleaning that out. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. It's beautiful. Whenever somebody who's far from Christ comes into this room and experiences worship or goes to a body life group and experiences worship or goes to a women's Bible study and experiences fellowship and community and they see God and God shows themselves to God and He transforms their life and the exaltation. And guess what? It becomes contagious. They will say of Grace Point Church, God is really among you. He's changing lives. He's bringing marriages back together again. Careers that have gone in the tank. God is putting hope back in there again. What is it that God is wanting to breathe in to your life. Look at this next verse. Can't get away from it. Psalm 40 verse 3. And he put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. Notice this. Notice the contagious, infectious element of worship. Whenever the new song is in my mouth and the praise is on my lips, many will see and fear and put their trust in God. Many will see They will fear and they will put their trust in God. When people look at your life, do they see such a beautiful life of worship? There's no mistaking that God's at work there. They see it. They begin to fear it. That fear is respect. And they begin to trust God themselves. Real worship has an infectious ripple effect. you look at this passage, I want to read one couple more verses. You see the, this effect happening in verse 10. They recognized him. This is the guy who's been jumping up and down, leaping, praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, he's like, I'm not certain I can do this. He clung to Peter and John. The people were utterly astonished. Blown away. 
When God does a work in a marriage, when God does a work in a heart of an individual, when God takes the crookedness of our own life and he shows himself, shines his light onto it, there's a transforming effect you can't walk away from. And you can't keep it to yourself. You'll be jumping and leaping right into the kids' ministry, right onto a jet plane around the world. You will see that you cannot contain it. And it will become infectious, contagious. Would you bow your heads with me? Just in this moment, what is God revealing to you about you? Revealing to you about Him. Let's just start there. Lean in. Lean in. Who, who can you spill your worship out onto where it's contagious, where they see, they fear, and they trust because of your worship? We challenged you a few weeks ago and you just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed and just in your own heart right now, listening to that revelation of God. Challenged you, 60 days, identify, invest, invite, intercede. For someone far from Christ. Have you found them yet? You got 40 something days. Notice the infectious nature of worship. Please spill over into some people's lives far from God. They need what you've got. Let God spill out of you. Father God, we bow before you now. And we ask that in this space, in this time, in the quietness of this moment you're revealing yourself you're showing us who we are you're showing us who you are Father help us to show who we can spill our lives into so that they will see so that they will fear so that they will trust you Lord In Jesus' name we pray.